Hello. Ni hao. Bonjour. Hi. Buenos dias. Guten tag. G'day. Welcome to the Husida Podcast, a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Husida Podcast. My name is Dr. Jimmy Young, and I'll be your host. This month, I was able to interview Dr. Kristen Ferguson, Dr. Carter Wang, and Elizabeth Modi about their article, Data-Driven Service Delivery, Using Population and Coalition Data to Re-Engage Opportunity Youth in Career and Educational Pathways. That was published in the Journal of Technology and Human Services. James Hoyt is also a co-author on this paper, but was not able to join us. Dr. Ferguson is a professor at Arizona State University's School of Social Work and the director of the Center for Human Capital and Youth Development. Her research focuses on the design, implementation, and evaluation of employment interventions for homeless and opportunity youth that integrate employment and clinical services, including supported employment and social enterprises. Over the past two decades, she's focused her research primarily in two areas. One, Design, Implementation, and Evaluation of Supported Employment and Social Enterprise Interventions for Vulnerable Youth Populations Combined with Assessment of Intervention Feasibility, Effectiveness, and Implementation. And two, Rigorous Evaluation across seven U.S. cities to examine the environmental and psychosocial conditions affecting youth homelessness and unemployment. Dr. Carter Wang is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Planning at Towson University in Maryland. Before joining Towson University, he worked as a postdoc and a research assistant professor at Arizona State University, where he also obtained his PhD in geography. Dr. Wing's research uses advanced geospatial technologies, including geographic information systems and remote sensing to address environmental, ecological, and social issues in U.S. cities, such as urban climate change, urban ecosystems, land use change, human health, and urban resilience. Elizabeth Hatch Modi is currently a doctoral student at Arizona State University School of Social Work and a researcher with the Center of Human Capital and Youth Development. Before she started her doctoral studies, Elizabeth earned her master's in social work and public administration while working in the Office of Global Social Work on her research related to healthcare accessibility and case management for newly arrived refugees in the Phoenix metro area. Elizabeth's research centers around equity in access to resources and opportunities, particularly for migrant populations and social service applications of spatial and policy analysis. In this episode, I learned more about the collective impact approach and the five main tenets of this approach, which include a common agenda, shared measurement system, mutually reinforcing activities, continuous communication, and a backbone staff and also how a collective impact approach can help agencies become more data-driven for the collective, but also individually, and create a culture of learning among the agencies that are involved. In the interview, we talked a little bit about geographic information systems, or GIS data, along with a reference to some other GIS-related work by our guests that I'll include a link to out on the HUSITA blog. But we talked about logic models and how important it is to identify goals and challenges stakeholders, and other information to engage in data-driven service delivery from a collective impact perspective or approach. So to me, this was such a great conversation that I felt like macro-focused social workers would really benefit from and understand that like community analysis, there are multiple steps in a transformational change process. It takes a lot of work, but it's totally worth it. 
I really appreciated Dr. Ferguson providing us with five takeaways or points of advice for getting started with data-driven service delivery near the end of the interview. And I think it's important that we also define a couple of terms, specifically opportunity youth. So from their article, our guests define opportunity youth as 16 to 24 year olds who are neither in school nor working. Also a definition for collective impact from the article again. Collective impact is an approach that's aimed at widespread social change. So again, I learned a lot from this interview and I really hope that you enjoy this episode of the Husita podcast. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on the Husita podcast today. We have Kristen Ferguson, Carter Wang, and Elizabeth Modi. Uh, I'm happy to have you all here as we discuss your article, Data-Driven Service Delivery, Using Population and Coalition Data to Reengage Opportunity Youth in Career and Educational Pathways. And so I'm, again, really excited. Thank you for taking the time to join me today on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I think we'll just kind of jump right into a little bit of background, maybe if you can provide some context to the study, the paper, um, and a little bit specifically about what data-driven service delivery actually is. All right, so I'll take that one. Um, hello, and thank you for having us. Uh, we're excited to be able to talk about this study and the work we've been doing through uh, the Opportunities for Youth Coalition. Um, so this study is based on the work of many partners, in addition to Kristen, Carter, and myself, involved in the Opportunities for Youth Coalition in the Phoenix metro area. Um, we put together this paper to explain how our network of education and employment-focused youth-serving organizations have been coordinating their service planning, their service delivery, and their evaluations over the last five years or so. Um, the partners in this coalition decided to start collecting data annually to measure their impact on the community. And this decision was largely influenced by numbers coming out of national reports like the Measure of America series on disconnected youth that determines that nationally, the Phoenix metro area had one of the highest proportions of youth in that emerging adult age range, 16 to 24, who were disconnected from education and employment. So before the three of us had even come on board, the community leaders and service providers had taken the initiative to approach this issue collectively. And this approach, Kristen, will go more into in a moment. Um, so this idea of data-driven service delivery was really born out of a community initiative. And then Arizona State University became involved and Kristen Center of Human Capital and Youth Development started overseeing the coalition's activity. Um, and she brought in Carter, whose expertise was instrumental in helping us organize and see the coalition's data in the context of the demographic makeup of the Phoenix community um, using the American Community Survey ACS data. And over the years, we've been able to improve our data collection efforts, utilizing both the American Community Survey population level data uh, those national reports and local agency data collected by our partners to more effectively identify who local youth we serve are, who we decorously call opportunity youth, uh, what services they need and want, um, how we can as a coalition best deliver those services and then follow up and evaluate our efforts. Awesome, well, thank you so much. And, and I know that collective impact seemed like a 
huge portion of this paper, this study. So maybe can you all go into collect the collective impact approach just a little bit more and give us some background there. Our coalition here in the greater Phoenix metro area started organizing back in the uh, around 2013 um, around the high rates of opportunity youth in our metro area. Um, some 2012 data put Phoenix, the metro Phoenix area, as the high, having the highest rate of opportunity youth at the time. Um, it was one in five, close to 20% of young people uh, in the age range of 16 to 24 were not working and not in school. And that really rallied our mayor at the time, uh, Greg Stanton, um, and some of our county and city organizations, City of Phoenix, the County of Maricopa, um, and local nonprofits to really come together and to start to strategize around how we could reduce that rate. And so lots of organizations at the time, there were you know 50 to 100 partners were showing up for these forums and these meetings. And everyone was doing these kind of isolated attempts to help their small group of 100 to 300 youth in their respective agencies get connected to work and school, career and education pathways. But no one agency was, was able to really make a dent in um, the large rates of, of opportunity, opportunity youth or disconnected youth at the time. So there was a seminal article um, in the Stanford Social Innovation Review back in 2011, Kanye and Kramer, and this article really motivated um, our colleagues to have a framework for how to work collectively together around a common agenda. Um, and so we, we chose this framework. This framework had been used in public health and community development um, around the country, and it really gave us, um, you know, a, a roadmap for how to do this better together. And, and the assumption is that no one organization can solve these kind of complex, wicked, systemic problems in isolation in their own agency. It really takes the power of cross-system collaboration rallied around a common agenda with agencies agreeing to and adopting shared measures to track the progress on that common agenda um, together. And so what are the tenets? What are the principles of collective impact that we've been using? First and foremost, a common agenda. So our, our partners collectively said, we're the highest in the nation and having a disconnected rate. We, our common agenda is we want to lower that. Uh, then we need shared measures, and uh, we have a whole, we had a whole process in place for getting our partners to look first at the data they have, the data they needed, uh, and how they could share their data to impact that rate. Um, next, you have mutually reinforcing activities, and it it kind of sounds perhaps a lot easier than it is done. This is really asking agencies to kind of. Um, marry their own individual interest in their agencies with the collective interest of the group, right? And sometimes that means foregoing a grant for your own agency that the collective would better benefit from, or it means referring young people out of your organization when you have input funding to get uh, dollars for that young person's head in your program, uh, you would refer that person to a better fitting uh, organization in your network. So mutually reinforcing activities, um, we continue to, to invest a lot of time and energy and resources into getting agencies to identify um, how we can work better together and have better synergy um, collectively. So an example of that here in the greater Phoenix area is um, having a priority referral system where all agencies in our network know what the uh, strengths and resources are in their agencies and where some of the gaps are. And then we have a backbone staff who um, helps to 
um, make suggested referrals, warm handoffs of young, young people to get them to the right place. And a lot of times that means co-location, it means um, uh, partners doing joint outreach and joint service provision um, by co-enrolling young people in multiple programs. We know that young, young people's needs oftentimes are holistic. This is wrapping holistic services around young people's already holistic needs. Um, so common agenda, shared measures, we have mutually reinforcing uh, activities, and then uh, communication, both internal and external communication. For collective impact to work well, we have to be able to communicate um, uh, internally amongst ourselves to have um, you know, workflows and processes to get things accomplished internally. Uh, people are beholden to their own agency's demands, but they're also, as part of collective impact, impact beholden to kind of the coll collective common agenda. So having somebody um, or a team of staff uh, be able to communicate how work is done, uh, attention to, to metrics and results is very important to really energize people around seeing the accomplishments. And then you need an external communication plan that really is communicating to funders and the press and society and to young people themselves what our resources are, what our impact is, um, to really you know, be a force within the greater Phoenix area of, of the work that we're doing. And then lastly, a backbone staff. And, and typically it's recommended that this is a kind of neutral convener, um, somebody that's not directly embedded in the work or gaining from the work itself, but some type of, again, neutral or third party entity. In our case, uh, we have a university uh, set of staff who are the backbone leading this effort. And the nice distinction for us is that the university staff are not direct service providers where all of our entities are direct service providers. So we really kind of approach this from a non-compete perspective. So to do collective impact well, you know, really giving attention uh, to these five principles and they've been our guiding roadmap over the last uh, six to seven years that we've been doing this work. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed reading more about the collective impact approach. I've come across collective impact in some other work, uh, almost got put on a committee that did some collective impact uh, approach work, but it didn't it didn't happen. So I was happy to read through this and see a little bit more about how it really does provide a roadmap for how agencies and partners can all work together. And I really like what you said in the beginning there uh, about the the problems and challenges that a lot of organizations encounter and how it, they they can't really do it alone right in fact i pulled a quote from y'all's paper uh if you don't mind i'll read it real quick <laughs> so uh this and i can't remember where at it it's in the paper i just pulled it but uh, it speaks to what you were saying so the roots of many complex and vexing social issues cross sectors and systems in and in the process create overlapping areas of work that are ideal for interagency partnerships. Such social issues cannot be resolved by one agency alone. And I just love that because, uh, you know, having worked for nonprofits, I consult for nonprofits, I've done a lot in uh, the nonprofit world. And it is really interesting that we have, especially in social welfare, kind of uh, some overlap in service delivery. And it seems like there could be a better way. And I was wondering, I guess collective impact seems like that could be one of those roadmaps, one of those approaches, but maybe for a minute or two here, what might be some of the challenges with doing the collective impact approach or, or what might be some of the hard things to overcome to do it well? Thank you. So, you know, one 
just the, the quote that you have really resonated with us. I mean, we included it there because that really is the, the premise behind, uh, you know, the rationale behind wh why and how organizations can come together. You know, we're, we're better together. We're, we're more in synergy together. Um, but there are, there are inherent challenges in the process, as, as you noted. Um, when funding systems are set up to incentivize um, you know, young people being served in isolation in agencies, that, that makes it very difficult to get funding for agencies to work together. And, and in particular, our challenge is having a backbone staff of uh, non-direct service providers and coming out of a pandemic, many service, many funders want to fund direct service. They want to fund the actual young person um, versus kind of the indirect support services, the priority referral systems, the data collection, the convening of partners to rally around bigger systems change. Um, we've struggled with getting, um, you know, pitching that benefit of collected impact. Um, we say things like, our funders say, oh, you're doing such good work. We open our portfolio of 50 logos of all of our direct service providers. And they say, you're doing extraordinary work. And we fund this agency and this agency and this agency. And why should we then fund you? And we want to be able to say, if you would fund us, you know, you wouldn't have to fund individual attempts. But in saying that, we are inherently cannibalizing our partners and we don't want to do that, right? So we've tended to kind of shy away from those funders who say those types of responses. We can't fund you because we're funding your partners and trying to find other funders who maybe are operating more in this meta space. So a, a primary challenge is, is how do you keep these efforts sustained when individual, individual agencies are doing their own fundraisings, but then we need kind of a concerted effort to fund the, the collective. And again, these are things like professional development trainings for staff or putting in technology systems to have CRM systems, customer relationship management systems across agencies, data sharing agreements, uh, mass outreach to large numbers of young people that no one agency could do themselves. Um, those are the types of things that our backbone does um, for which we've struggled to, to get some funding. Um, a second challenge is kind of the narrowing and agreeing on a common agenda when you have 50 partners in a room, all of whom are self-interested for their own bottom line and their yeah. own agency results for their young people, right? And so even just saying, well, we want to reconnect young people with education and workforce. There are workforce providers and there are education providers. And when you take, when you bring Amazon to the table and Amazon says, let's hire 5,000 young people for our, you know, delivery centers or our, um, uh, you know, our, our packaging centers, our education providers, you know, stand up and holler, you're taking our kids out of school, let them finish their degrees first, right? And so there are inherent tensions in the systems we've set up to serve these young people, um, whereby uh, oftentimes it's either or, right, versus hey, Amazon has the uh, career choice tuition benefit program, uh, but they make you wait, is it 12 months before accessing that? Let's work with Amazon to engineer a system whereby a young person can stay in school and get their high school diploma, high school equivalency, uh, and do Amazon so that it's not either or, but it's both and. 
Um, we have uh, workforce providers and we have mental health providers. The workforce providers might say something like, work is therapeutic. Let's get young people to get their job and their depressive symptoms will go away. And the mental health providers might say, hey, we need to work on behavioral health issues because work is exacerbating uh, behavioral health challenges, right? And so um, we, narrowing and agreeing on a common agenda by asking people to kind of set aside their uh, individual interest for the collective interest. We, we tried that for years and, and honestly failed. What we do now is what is your individual interest and how can we try to better align your agency's individual interest to the collective interest versus asking people to separate those and work in your agency and in your individual interest space and work in our collective in your collective interest space. And then lastly, um, like at the funding issue and the narrowing and agreeing on a common agenda. And then the data, the data has um, been kind of a, a, a sticking point in our, in our uh, initiative, but it's also been kind of a, a tremendous benefit when we can come together around establishing these data sharing agreements. Uh, some agencies are very private about their data and very territorial and, and with reason, you know, they've had data breaches or they've had uh, concerns about um, you know, taking their data and doing things that are not in the best integrity of the clients. And we respect those, um, those issues and we want to honor, you know, those, those issues. But again, really being able to work with a data champion in each agency uh, to be able to um, have data integrity and have honor the, 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 the inherent data of each agency, but also bring data together for a bigger synergistic um, output of showing that we're not just serving one to 300 young people in 10 agencies, but we're serving over 5,000 young people collectively uh, and giving metrics to, to funders on a, on a bigger scale. That's really interesting. And to me, sounds like the communication, the continuous communication pillar of that approach has to be super important. I mean, there's got to be a lot of constant communication happening there to get everybody on the same page. But then maybe once it happens, some beautiful uh, things can happen amongst all the partners. Now, I, I'm glad you bought, brought up a lot of the data uh, there at the end there and how we think about using data. Uh, you know, I've said this in several podcasts now, but Husida is all about the ethical uh, use of technology for human betterment. Uh, ethical and appropriate use of technology for human betterment. So part of that includes thinking about data and how data is used and where it's uh, collected, how it's collected, all of that stuff, right? So how does the collective impact approach and data-driven ideologies fit together? How, how are these two used either in the context of your paper or more broadly, just how do they fit together with the approach here to make some improvements? So when we think about collective impact and we think about data-driven, um, we really see collective impact as the vehicle to help agencies become more data-driven, both in themselves and then for the collective. Um, some of our agencies were very data-driven to start with, and they were kind of our, our champions or our pillars um, to whom we uh, appointed and, and held up their practices and other agencies adopted their practices. Um, so we see collective impact as, as a way to help individual agencies become more data-driven as well as um, using, uh, honoring, highlighting, promoting the data-driven practices of our partners, our individual partners, for the benefit of learning of our other partners who, again, didn't have 
um, as robust data collection or data analysis or data dissemination procedures in place. Um, we see, uh, for instance, uh, ways in which agencies can, um, in doing data sharing agreements with us, uh, have that as one of our mutually um, reinforcing activities um, whereby they share our data with the collective and then we have backbone staff um, you're on this podcast today, we have Elizabeth Modi and Carter Wang, both of whom brought extraordinary, um, extraordinarily unique to our initiative um, analytic skills, large data, GIS mapping, um, and uh, being able to give agencies back their data in new and unique formats, doing infographics um, uh, with uh, highlights of their data, um, monetizing amounts of cost savings uh, when we re-engage young people, uh, showing local maps for agencies to know what their service area is of young people by zip code, uh, as well as benchmarking those data to um, you know, state and national standards to show how well we're doing or not so well we're doing uh, with the broader population. So we've seen that the two of these concepts, collective impact and data-driven, fit very well together in allowing collective impact, its, its principles, um, to be the tenets to help agencies become more data-driven in themselves. And then when they are doing those practices, uh, using those or adopting those as our mutually reinforcing practices for other agencies to learn from. At the end of the day, it's made a kind of culture of learning, a culture of attention to data uh, in our movement that has permeated back into agencies, um, which is, is quite nice to see. We've seen changes in agencies' intake forms and changes in the way that agencies are reporting their data and using our collective data for their funding benefits uh, so that there's some nice uh, synergy there as well. And I think that's kind of the, the, the power of a data-driven service delivery model, right? Is if you have data or information about your processes, then you have power to make some changes where they might be needed or improve upon certain processes to ultimately benefit your clients or your consumers. Yes, absolutely. Power to make changes, again, within your own agencies, power for our collective to have a, a, a stronger story, a stronger uh, set of outputs of what the collective is doing, uh, and then power to influence, make make your own changes within, within your agency. It, it's really nice to see how agencies now are mentoring other agencies with good examples of being data-driven in their own agencies. I, I mentioned around changes in intake forms, yeah. um, changes in uh, how they're reporting data. They didn't used to collect certain data and now they do collect it. Uh, so again, in, 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 in showing them that when they, when they measure something, it actually counts, right? When they start counting something, it actually you know, symbolically counts to, to them as an agency and to us as a movement. So I had um, in my PhD program a long time ago, one of the professors uh, casually mentioned that if you don't measure or if you can't measure it, then it doesn't exist. Yeah. And, you know, we wrestled with that, of course, obviously, as uh, doc students might well do. But it really is kind of interesting that this data, this information can be powerful in helping you as, from a collective approach or individually as an organization make some decisions about how to move forward. So I'm wondering either in the context of your paper or even if you want to go more broadly with some examples, what might be some processes that are needed for organizations to begin being data driven? 
in their decision making or just what does what does that look like? How did you get them started if they weren't already doing some data driven ideas? So, you know, all things considered, the two main ways that organizations can become uh, more data driven that we discuss in our case study include first, you know, identifying the outcomes or goals um, of your programming and how they address the broader social challenges that you as an organization are concerned about. And second, gathering population level data from outside sources to help you delineate the extent of that social challenge in your community, uh, as well as develop a more detailed picture or understanding of who your target population is in the broader community. you know, specific metrics you would use would definitely depend on your organization's mission, but overall uh, being data-driven in your decision-making as a human service organization involves asking uh, first, what challenges are we concerned about? Um, how do our outcomes get at solving those social challenges? Um, and who are our target populations and how are they fitting into the larger community? Um, So first, considering how your main outcomes address the social challenge, um, these outcomes are variables that you likely already collect data on internally. Uh, They're the goals that you want your clients to attain Um, in your program logic model. They're probably listed as outputs, you know, think of like enrollment rates, for example, are our big ones. Um, And this outcome data can be seen as the organization's way of addressing that social challenge you're concerned about. Um, And next, using population level data from public research reports and or, you know, the U.S. Census can help you keep track of that social challenge you're working on and identify who your target populations are. Uh, This data might give you information on potential assets they have or, you know, extra external barriers that they face. For us, there are national organizations like Measure of America, Opportunity Nation, and the Aspen Institute who regularly publish reports on Opportunity Youth that we can reference uh, to gather information on who Opportunity Youth are in our community. And uh, census data is particularly helpful for helping us figure out where we need to be to best serve them. Um, If you don't have an expert like Carter on your team, uh, the US Census's website could still be used to gather some of that information about the makeup of your community. Um, They've updated their website to be user-friendly So you can go in there and gather information um, that's relevant to your community and your area pretty easily. Um, You know, uh, as as Kristen kind of touched on, we've seen in our partner agencies how having an internal data person, uh, you know, someone who can assess the organization's data collection efforts uh, and place this data in the context of how that social challenge exists in their community is valuable. Um, In reflecting on your organization's data collection process, it also helps to have flexibility in your data collection. Um, In our case, we've made alterations and additions um, to our data collection every year um, as a coalition to improve our work um, and address special populations in our community, um, such as tracking um, who and what services are provided to refugees or veterans. Um, So we can best see how we can provide referrals or so partners can target programming. Um, And when collecting more data isn't an option, um, asking service providers to estimate some factors can work in lieu of hard numbers. 
Um, we've had agencies just provide us estimates at the end of the year of how many youth they serve in certain demographics, you know, when they didn't have those data collection processes to gather the, the hard numbers. Um, and not all organizations have the capacity uh, to have a designated data person on staff. Um, and that's really we're working in partnership with other organizations and also universities um, can be beneficial. Yeah. So I teach a program evaluation class and uh, in my also in another class, my macro social work practice class, I have students do an agency analysis. So part of what you just said about logic models and using data. And I mean, that was like an exemplar that I'm going to have to just give to my students and say, look, see, I'm not just teaching you this for the sake <laughs> of teaching it to you. Like it's used out in the field and used mm -hmm. well. So thank you for that, for one. Um, but yeah, it's it's so important to consider these factors in order to help organizations run better. And again, kind of bringing it back to that collective impact approach where you're saying, uh, either partnering with the university or partnering with other agencies in order to uh, work better. It almost seems like a no brainer, but it is honestly interesting how many organizations don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I kind of I want to jump into this next question about the kinds of technology that are required or maybe what you would suggest for organizations to become more data driven. And so, Carter, I don't know if you want to jump in on here. Uh, and if you want to uh, use some of the examples from the paper or even, again, go more broadly, uh, just let us know. What do you think organizations can use or start with? Okay. So, yeah, I would take that question because I think I'm a more like a data or, 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 or technology person. Um, so I think in order to answer this question, we first need to understand, you know, um, what what, what data are being collected because the technology is or center you know the technologies or techniques that people use are all centered around the data so we first need to understand what is the nature of the data right so people may think okay data may just be like a bunch of numbers but actually sometimes the data is not about the numbers about the values but also uh, the data may have like locations attached to it or it has like a time scale Right. So we call that kind of data is, uh, you know, a, a, a spatial data set or, or, or a spatial temporal data set. So if data has locations, OK, and, you know, we may use different kind of approach to analyze the data. So, for example, um, you know, um, like in, you know, in this study, we have data uh, that are collected in different years and maybe, you know, uh, collected in different locations in different cities or different counties. So different kind of technologies or, or techniques that may be, you know, may be required to analyze different types of data. So um, uh, let's say if, if, if the organizations uh, just want to try to compare like a data or, or just the values and that are collected in different months and years, and maybe a basic statistical analysis like a t-test or nova test may be you know uh, sufficient enough, you know to see if there is a statistically significant differences between uh, between different time periods, between different months or between different years. And but if the data has like a, a um, you know locations attached to it, like a, you know we call that spatial data set, then some advanced kind of spatial analysis um, you know is 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 required or recommended. Uh, for example, like in spatial analysis, like we have nearest neighbor analysis, 
and um, you know spatial autocorrelation analysis or spatial regression analysis. So these type of analyses uh, not only deal with the numbers, but also they look at the spatial relationship mm -hmm. between data. And so that requires some more advanced knowledge, as I mentioned in like spatial statistics, uh, which is a, a subfield in, in, in geographic information uh, science or GI science. And so in order to perform these kind of analysis, we would also need uh, like a, a technician or a person who know how to use a spatial analysis software, like for example, ArcGIS, which is the most widely used commercial uh, GIS software package out there. Mm -hmm. And also um, QGIS is a, a free uh, kind of, a, um, you know, spatial analysis software. And um, um, so, yeah, so these are the software that people may, may, may want to use if, we, if they want to deal with the spatial data set. Another technique is also, uh, I mean, it's called a spatial temporal analysis, which actually combines the spatial and the time, you know, the time uh, properties of the data. This kind of technique is more uh, complicated and because it takes both time and space into consideration. So it requires more advanced knowledge and skills in statistics for people to, um, you know, to um, know more about the data. So. So, I mean, I think some of our listeners will probably be somewhat familiar with ArcGIS, maybe not all listeners across the world, wherever yeah. you are, but uh, <laughs> GIS, Geographic Information Systems, if I can just pick on that real quickly, uh, because Carter, like your, your background's not really in social work, human services, correct? Um, yes. Actually, I'm a uh, geographer. Yeah, so I found that really interesting too. When I pulled your y'all's article down and was reading through it and looking at your background and stuff, it's like, wow, okay, we have a GIS <laughs> person. I should really pick his brain. So, um, with geographic information systems, what might be something fairly simple that a, a human service organization could begin with, or why might they even care to use that type of a technology? Okay, I think it's a very good question. Uh, I remember when I was hired as a PhD student by Dr. Ferguson in, in 2018, I believe, in spring 2018, and uh, I was hired as a data technician to, to help analyze data. And so I introduced GIS to the project and, uh, you know, a lot of people are amazed by the technology and say, oh, it opens new doors to the field because, you know, some people may never, or, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, may have never used this technology before. So if, you know, I think, you know, for an organization, if they don't have like a very well-trained GIS technician or, or, or somebody like that, I mean, simply you can just use the data and create some maps, mm -hmm. you know, and we can visualize the data in the map and to see, for example, uh, where is the highest, like a, um, opportunity youth population in that region. And uh, we may see some kind of clusters of, of high numbers, like large numbers. And uh, this may, may bring some more questions about like, why is the, uh, like, why is the population clustered in this region? There may be some other underlying factors that influence the distribution of the data, but not, you know, you know as I mentioned, because these data have, have locations attached to it, right? So we can visualize in the map and see their, a geographic distribution, not only the numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, so like GIS software, as I mentioned, ArcGIS is 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 uh, you know is a commercial package, and you need to uh, purchase a license for mm -hmm. that. Uh, but uh, if you don't want to spend too much money, then QGIS is a uh, a free GIS software package that everybody can use. And but again, no matter it is ArcGIS or QGIS, it it requires some like knowledge and background in in. In, in, in like a spatial analysis or uh, and uh, cartography. And because if you don't know how to make maps, then that becomes a little bit more uh, difficult for you. Yeah. So I would highly recommend that, um, you know, uh, to, to have some like uh, people with GIS background to do the maps and I think it's very helpful. And, and I could add, Jimmy, if I could add, um, when Carter joined our team, the extent of our sophistication with mapping was using Google Maps and putting pins for the agency addresses where our youth could get services. Mm -hmm. And those for us were mind blowing because we could share in a presentation for young people, all the different locations that they could go to uh, to get their services. And we would get requests from other um, networks. Oh, could you use Google Maps and plot our locations to show young people all the adult education centers where they could get a GED so they can map the closest one to their house or their work and make it very convenient. Yeah. So we were already in that space, but Carter's being a little humble because he brought our sophistication with mapping to a whole new level. And again, granted, he has a skill that maybe most people in um, social work don't have, although I'll say, you know, Elizabeth Modi is a doctoral student and has taken classes in GIS, schools of social work do offer these classes. I think more schools of social work could offer these classes and should offer these classes based on some of the learnings from our um, from our study. But what ended up happening, Carter was able to take a data sharing agreement we have with our state's Department of Economic Security that has home addresses of all the young people who are receiving public assistance from our uh, State Department of Economic Security. Uh, and we were using um, the variables of whether they're working or not and whether in school. And Carter created a smaller subset of young people who are opportunity youth. And he plotted their addresses on maps and created some heat maps for us. And I'm uh, sharing with you in the chat a reference um, to an article he led that does some nice visualization of these maps and shows how these maps um, really instructed not only our backbone and our local agency staff who do outreach to spend more time and resources in the hot spot, the high density areas where there's just greater numbers of young people per square mile who are not working and not in school, but also agencies when they think about service expansion, um, opening up a new re-engagement center or going to do um, you know certain services in certain characteristics with certain characteristics, young people with special needs, young people with um, different immigration statuses, uh, they would use our maps to go and, and direct their agency resources to the higher density areas because it's more efficient. They're getting more bang for their buck, right? And so those are kind of two specific things that you know, in bringing GIS and bringing Carter and GIS to our movement, you know, really opened the eyes of our agencies of the power of the visualization, the visualization of the data to direct and redirect uh, outreach resources and service expansion resources to where the people are, right? So no longer were agencies putting their centers where donors wanted them or where administrators thought they should be, but they were allowing the, the power of the data, the power of the, the people's home addresses to instruct where where services needed to be uh, you know more concentrated 
Yeah. And I mean, what a perfect example to even tie the use of technology generally, but specifically GIS back to even the census level data. Using this information and this data to create visualizations, as you all have said, and, and I'll link out on the Husita blog to, uh, to Carter's uh, article there that you provided in the chat. I think that's something that's really powerful. It's published in the Journal of Social Work as well. So it's of interest to social workers in seeing how we can use technology better and specifically GIS. The thing that I think is really awesome and potential for amazing use with GIS and social work as you all have created these maps, uh, you can do so much more with those maps, whether it's like, well, let's think about if we have these service providers and one provides a certain type of service but doesn't provide whatever, and that we need to send our opportunity youth over to the next agency, where's the bus line? Where's some of these simple things that maybe we don't always think about right off the bat, but you can overlay in GIS and show that information much more powerfully. And I will say, you know, again, Carter's visioning helped us to do some of that. He then went to our Maricopa Association of Governments that has transportation data and has employer data. And we picked the industry of construction and the industries of construction and manufacturing just to show a couple maps um, that have gotten some traction. Um, one is showing bus routes or lack thereof, you yeah. know, where the employers are and where the young people live. And the other is showing kind of job openings um, in construction and manufacturing and the spatial mismatch of like where people live in high densities and where the jobs are and the lack of transportation. So these are economic development questions um, that, you know, really then lead to bigger conversations. And Carter was actually handpicked from our Maricopa um, County Workforce Board um, to create some maps for them in thinking about um, repartitioning their workforce centers in areas of higher density. Imagine, you know, imagine the need to do that, recognizing that they had very low traffic in some of their, um, you know, existing workforce centers, and they really wanted to see Carter show them with population data, you know, where people are living and where their workforce centers should be. Yeah, love it. Such a good, tangible example of how we can use data and technology to improve services. Ah, oh, so amazing. All right. Well, I know we only have a few minutes left, so I think I want to ask you and all of you can kind of chime in on this just from your perspectives and doing this paper and engaging in this study and the research. Uh, what advice would you give agencies and others to begin the process of becoming data-driven and using data to inform their service delivery? I'll go ahead and start and then I'll ask my colleagues if they have anything else to add. Um, I have kind of you know five takeaways that I think would be good points of advice based on our experience. Uh, the first one, and my colleagues have, have um, suggested some of these, planted some seeds around these uh, in our podcast, one is do your logic model, right? And and I say that, you know, it, I say that intentionally because as an instructor of um, program planning and development and uh, program evaluation, students commonly say, you know, when will I ever use this in the real world? Um, and I, I say, you know, our movement is being driven by a logic model and we've been sharing examples of logic models to get agencies uh, to use them as well to create that data-driven culture and that kind of communication of their, not just the wonderful work that everyone is doing, the kind of hyper-focus on activities, but more of the focus on outputs. We can all count how many young people are showing up, how many employers 
employers are giving them jobs, how many people are enrolled, getting them to, to talk more in outputs language, and then being able to move us to the outcomes language. Great. So we know how many young people are showing up and benefiting from the, the hard work we're all doing. Now let's move the conversation to our, our outcomes. The logic model, again, is a fabulous tool uh, to be able to do that. So let me interrupt really quick and just say it again. Logic models are important. Yeah. Um, so first, do your logic model and kind of have your roadmap moving the conversation from uh, from your activities to your outputs and ultimately your, your outcomes. Second is, and we've said this before, identify your data champions, right, in your own organizations, as well as kind of for the benefit of your movement, right? Our data champions are people like uh, Elizabeth Modi and, and Carter Wang, who, you know, have really shepherded um, the conversation around data and new types of data in the nonprofit and public workforce sector and education sector um, around data. But internally in the agencies, we wouldn't have gotten where we are now without these internal data champions and back ambassadors um, who are meeting with people like uh, Elizabeth and Carter to share their data, to ask questions about their data, to improve their internal counting, uh, to be able to then produce data for the collective that's meaningful and relevant um, and impactful. So second is identify and use your and honor and really support your data champions. Um, next is make your data work for you, right? And so what, when I say that, you know, we're getting everybody to feed in uh, the data to us and, you know, how we do this, uh, just if this isn't clear, we initially for about three years tried to fund a large customer relationship management system across 18 organizations and we failed miserably and we failed because there were so many different CRM systems that agencies were required to use by their funders or by their board. Uh, and the, the thought of adding another CRM system like broke many of our, it broke, emotionally broke many of our agencies. And other, other issues were the confidentiality. They didn't want us us as a university seeing the HIV status of our partners who serve HIV positive young people, right? They thought that that was a, a data breach. And, you know, honestly, it probably is, right? And so um, we didn't have a way to hide certain data and share other data. And the conversations, um, you know, really never progressed beyond a few of our agencies saying we'll use a CRM. Most of our agencies said we really can't commit to that. So we use Qualtrics. It's um, our, our university has a uh, subscription to Qualtrics. Many universities have their version of this, or you might think of SurveyMonkey as a way to do this. And we ask our providers, Elizabeth and Carter built out a uh, quarterly data collection system in Qualtrics with questions that agencies um, enter their own aggregate data on. So that takes away the need to share client level data um, by having aggregate data. Again, it, it's great for agencies. It's not so good for us because we can't talk about client level outcomes. Um, so make the data work for you. We have a data capture system. They feed us their data. And uh, Elizabeth's idea has been to feed back to the agency's customized reports uh, in the form of infographics and maps um, and other data that can be plugged into their annual reports or their grants or their website. Uh, and this allows the agencies to really um, leverage, have their own data analyzed and then situated in the context of uh, larger coalition data uh, that show how they're contributing to the larger issue. Next, I would say, um, you know, leverage your local university resources. As we've said, um, 
Carter and Elizabeth came to us as doctoral students. We've used master students. We use a bachelor students as interns uh, in many aspects of our work. Um, universities are very hungry. We are in a crisis in higher education prior to the pandemic in a crisis around high, uh, increasing costs of higher education and decreasing relevance of our degree programs to real world problems. COVID has only exacerbated that. Racial inequities have exacerbated that. Universities really need to um, be more relevant and responsive um, in solving, helping solve the world's problems, right? And, and courses, instructors like yourself are very hungry to uh, make their courses have real world impact, right? So that students aren't doing a logic model that's gonna be a hypothetical agency, but are doing one for the benefit of the agency having its own logic model. So leverage your, uni your university resources to get the types of um, supports your agency and your collaboratives need to be able to progress. And again, it's a win-win for agencies and, and universities to be able to have those relationships. And lastly, I would just say, um, you know, consider shifts in the organizational culture to value data, right? And again, this is a this is a tough one because um, you know, agent it's, it can be costly to value data. It can be um, you know technically challenging to to value data. But again, in having these conversations with our agencies, where we're able to um, help them have language with their boards and with their administrators. Um, to see the benefits of the data. Like, for instance, with this agency report, we're able to plug in all these infographics right away to our grants and get these grants. Or we're able to monetize the cost savings of young people being reinvested in education and workforce. And boom, that number of cost savings is going on our website. And we're showing our funders the social impact or the cost savings of um, re-engagement in education and workforce. So when we can give some examples of how to value data, how to make data part of an agency culture, uh, I think we're better together. Yeah. So let me add something here. Um, well, I think Kristen, you know, uh, I mean, your summary is pretty good. And I think uh, one thing that I would like to point out is that if the agency or the organization really doesn't know where to start with, I would say start with the census data because the census data is so powerful. It tells you almost everything about your region and uh, um, you know, hire a statistician or hire a, a data analyst or hire a GIS specialist to help, uh, you know, help analyze the data, create a bunch of maps and to see how the population looks like around your region. So I think that's a very good start you know, point. And also, if you, if the agency or the organization want to uh, collect their own data, and one thing that um, you know to be aware of is that uh, how often should the data be collected? Should I collect it like every month, every quarter, or or every year, or like once a year, or uh, uh, once every two years? And I would say that um, you know um, you know we we used yearly data set in our uh, in, in I mean this paper because it corresponds to how often how often the, the census data was collected. So I think, you know, census data is collected and reported every single year. So that's how we uh, match our data with the census data. And also, you know, uh, the census data have like five-year estimates, like the American Community S uh, Survey, ACS, they have also five-year estimates and also they have decennial census data. So, um, but, but it really depends on, uh, you know, what your problem is and, uh, uh, and and how 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 you are planning to to use the data for? 
So I would say that if we really don't know where, you know, how to start with, I would say a yearly data set may be good enough, you know, to, to get started because that corresponds with the census data very well. So yeah, I would highly recommend to start with the census data and create some maps to visualize the population in your region. So Carter did something very interesting for us and Elizabeth, Carter and Elizabeth together, where we have our agency um, collective data where everybody's feeding in the aggregate data uh, and we, we show our outcomes as a collective. Um, but Carter and Elizabeth have kind of benchmarked those to um, our greater Phoenix metro area data through the American uh, Community Survey. Uh, and what that does for us is it shows us where we're doing really well in, for instance, reaching out to certain racial or ethnic minority youth. We're serving more of them in our network than they're represented in the larger population. So great, that really shows that our agencies are doing a really good job in outreaching to um, racial and ethnic minorities. We maybe are not doing such a good job in serving young people with diverse abilities. They're much higher represented in our county or our greater Phoenix metro area population than they are in our agencies. So that really leads to conversations around how can we do a better job bringing in our diverse ability agencies as well as having our outreach staff better trained in um, eliciting conversations with young people with diverse abilities, right, around their education and workforce needs. Yeah, I think uh, my final tidbit would be, you know, collective work is is definitely an advantage, as I think, you know, we've argued. Uh, but single organizations can also take the steps we've described to assess how they address broader social challenges and familiarize themselves with the makeup of their community, um, adjusting their services and their evaluative measures in response, and you know, just learning as as they go, as we've done um, in opportunities for youth. I just have to say thank you to you all again. This has been an incredible conversation and it really sounds like y'all are having a good demonstrable impact within the greater Phoenix area, area, Maricopa County. Such amazing, great work. So thank you, Elizabeth Modi. Thank you, Carter Wang. And thank you, Kristen Ferguson for being on the Husita podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Husita Podcast is a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast, please connect with us on our website at www.husita.org, on Twitter at Husita.org, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Husita.org. Be sure to rate the podcast and share it with your networks to help us create a world where information technology is used to promote the social good and human well-being. My name is Jimmy Young. You can also connect with me on Twitter at JimmySW. Thanks for listening to the podcast.